0: I've never seen somebody with acute glaucoma who had a perfectly normal physical examination.
1: I think the uh, idea of sending people home with chest pain of unclear etiology, that gives me the creeps to tell you the truth.
0: We're going back through asking a question about, do we really need more residencies in emergency medicine? Hello
1: and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, Greg, you're in Ann Arbor. I'm in Los Angeles. And... um, We're doing the May 2021 issue, and we have a guest. Uh, Rachel was with us a couple of months ago. Yes, she was. Rachel, welcome back. I appreciate her uh, taking the time with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: You know, uh, Rachel uh, practices at the uh, Mayo uh, ER in Phoenix and uh, went to ASU Law School. So she's kind of living in in, uh, Scottsdale now, and now, as you may know or may not know, my son Dan lives there in Scottsdale, so we have lots of reasons to go to Scottsdale and to see our grandkids. Our grandkids happen to live with Dan and his wife, but uh, but that's kind of the the story there. You go to see your grandkids.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, Greg, you okay? Everything's all right up then up there. I I, I see it's that good. according to. To the news, you're having like a big outbreak of COVID up there.
0: Yes, we're having a lot of COVID. Nobody knows why. And, you know, we've got a governor who thinks she's doing the right things. Uh, We got a governor in the state just below us. He's doing different things. None of it seems to make a whole lot of difference. And if we ever figure it out, it's going to be really, really good. Um, You know what? I'm glad I'm not going to school or college or that kind of stuff during COVID. It'd be awful. It just wouldn't be any fun.
1: Well, hoping things are going to open up. But California is supposed to open up June 15th. I and mean, when they say open up, that means everything is opening up, you know, you know uh, Disneyland and everything uh, associated with it. Let's get started. We have an okay. email from Chris Slusher who is uh, a a frequent writer, and uh, I've known Chris for decades. Chris works in an urgent care center that's in a large medical building. And um, the question here is, they're supposed to go to the cardiac arrests that occur in this medical office building uh, from their urgent care center. And Chris uh, asks, should we run the arrest if, in fact, we know a person is a DNR? And um, this is kind of linked to the discussion we have a number of months ago about um, suits for doing CPR in people who specifically don't want CPR and the harm that is done to the family emotionally, to the patient emotionally, uh, the racking up of medical bills. You know, most of these people really don't live thereafter and they had terminal illnesses often as the cause of their uh, uh, arrest. So this is, I think, an opportunity to reiterate that. Rachel, what do you think? Um, should he begin CPR and somebody who's a DNR?
2: So I think this is actually pretty clear cut. If you know the patient's DNR, I would not be doing CPR on that patient. I've never seen any legal action taken against somebody for following the wishes of a patient when they're clear. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I, think, think, I think clear is, of course the real question here. But, you know, most of the people who arrest are old people. They've been brought in by family who kind of know what they want. And uh, if you've got two family members there and grandma's 90 and and she's not doing well, you know what? I'd kind of follow what the patient wanted.
1: Well, where it gets natty is where the patient doesn't want to be resuscitated and some relative uh, says, uh, you know, we want everything done kind of thing. Uh, and you're right, doing the code right then and there. Uh, and in emergency me- uh, medicine, we're often really not sure of their uh, DNR status. Uh, we, we Even if they hand us a bunch of papers, we don't know whether they're current or any, you know, what needs to be done or there's a, a signature missing or something like that. So... In the ER, we tend to resuscitate and worry about the other stuff uh, later. Yep. Any uh, any thoughts before we move on?
2: I just say whether it's right or wrong, I mean, the expectation of somebody codes if you don't know that their DNR is that you run that code. Um, I think that we all can recognize patients where we think that's not the right thing, but especially if if they have a family that has conflicting ideas, or they're not sure, or you're not sure they're the right decision makers. Unfortunately, the default in our system is to assume they would want aggressive measures.
0: Right. Uh, I'll I'll say this though in my in my career, whenever you start those kinds of arrests, uh, I wouldn't worry about the fifty or sixty percent who live. Because that isn't the kind of number that's produced. I mean, maybe there's an occasional person who comes back and and has a pulse, that sort of thing. But in my career, uh, they have basically been bad, no, expected outcomes. And that is they died. Well, you know, even
1: if they die, though, there is this issue of um, suffering uh anxiety on the part of the family and 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 those kinds of things and suffering on the part of the the one who recovered even if they recover for you know uh a couple of days and the uh industrial medical complex will rank ring up a bill of you know easily fifty thousand dollars you know right in, in a situation like that yeah that's, so i think we're go ahead oh.
2: I would say that's the opposite side of this that we should acknowledge is there are lots of multimillion dollar cases out there in which a patient who was known to be DNR or should have been known that they were DNR uh, had a code run on them and lived. You know, even if it's just for a couple of days, like you said, uh, the, the hospital and physicians can easily be held accountable for those costs. And on top of that, there are punitive damages that can stack up too. lots and lots of cases with that fact pattern.
1: Mm. Okay, so I think we kind of nailed that one for Chris. At least that's uh, our collective two cents. Um, if you know it, D R, don't do it. Don't call the paramedics. Well, you might need to call the paramedics to, to transfer. Obviously, this person is going to have to go to the hospital, but uh, under the idea that uh, they're going to have CPR in progress, no, that's not going to happen. Okay, uh, Greg, you're going to follow up here with a case from uh, Medical Malpractice Insights.
0: Uh, this is uh, the May uh, 2021 issue, so it doesn't get any hotter than that. Two cases uh, of, in, in intent of um, uh, glaucoma cases which were missed. Now, I will say this. In my career, um, one of the first things I learned to do was the slit lamp. I mean, was a medical student, I took that time. And using the applanation tonometer is one of those things that in a 45-year career has saved my butt on, on occasion. Bottom line is, it is part of the eye exam. If someone has pain in their eye of some kind, redness and pain, you ought to know what the pressure is. I think that's a good thing to do. And to not think about that. Uh, can be a problem because it is a a reasonably treatable disease. We can do things uh, that make the patient better. They can be put on medications. There are procedures which can be done. You know, this is something that we need to look at and make sure we don't miss in the department. Um, Have I seen it missed in the past? Yes, yes. But that's because we didn't ask the right set of questions. To me, doing, doing a pressure um, on an eye in an emergency department uh, just ought to be a standard part of the problem. I don't mean when you're removing a foreign body or something like that. But it's not difficult to do. And it's pretty much 100%. I, I've never seen the the applanation tenometer not pick up a glaucoma.
1: You know, uh, some of the quotes here, uh, that, the, these two cases occurred in the same emergency department in, in the same year. I mean, this is like lightning striking twice. <laughs> this,
0: exactly what I saw that I said, we, you know, we don't get uh, two cases uh, in, in most years of obvious increased pressure. I mean, th- these people, these people were not living right. Some, something was not right. Yeah. One know. guy uh, said, well, I didn't know we had a
1: ton- uh, toner pen or I would have used it. Well, that's, that's, that's really reassuring. No, no. <laughs> you know
0: and, You know what? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to actually use that as my defense. Uh, I don't know what our attorney thinks, but uh, yeah, oh, if, if I only known we had the correct instrument, that's that would be in, insane to say something like that.
1: And the other person said, uh, yeah, we know. I know that we have a toner pen. I just didn't think it was indicated.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I have no idea why.
1: Rachel?
2: <laughs> so for the first quote you said, I didn't know we had a toner pen or I would have used it. That to me smacks of an tall obligation. And MTAla violation. And the reason I say that, um, you know MTAla mandates that you do you screen for an emergency medical condition, and that's defined uh, in the statute as anything that can cause serious impairment to bodily function or a serious dysfunction of bodily organs. So obviously, if he thought a tonal pen was indicated, he just thought they didn't have it, you know he was worried that this patient had a glaucoma, could go blind. And that would meet the definition of an emergency medical condition by MTAla. So there, if he didn't have the capability to evaluate that patient, he should have transferred that patient under Umtala. So his admittance that he thought, you know, I would have used it if we had it, um, I think digs him in a hole right there.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he just dug he just dug his own uh his own grave there. And I, I don't think it would be a, a comment I would want given to uh, six, uh, 12 people picked from the general population here that, oh, yeah, God, if we'd only had one of those things. No, they've been around for years. None of this is new technology. And certainly, uh, applanation tonometry, which uh, a lot of us still have, uh, has has been for 50 years. I mean, that's just crazy. The problem with taking it
1: and making it a, a uh – Imtala violation is that you now are you're out of the jury system altogether. You're into the federal system. They basically can give you nice fines if they come in and investigate and find out that this was an issue. They can look at all your other charts and find out what other sc- things that you're doing that are kind of screwy as well. Uh, the other thing is, is that having had a successful impala violation makes it much more easy, you would think, to uh, have a lawsuit uh also against the uh, the hospital or the person. The other thing is, the Imtala thing is about the hospital and um, the uh, lawsuits are against the physician. And in this case, the physician and the hospital, because, you know, if they're talking about EMTALA, then it was kind of like, well, well, why didn't the hospital make it known uh, that they had a toner pen? So uh, it, it's, uh, it's a, a bit of a quagmire. And I agree, Greg, that... Um, I personally believe that once you get to learn to use a slit lamp, there will be no red eye that leaves your department undiagnosed.
0: Exactly. I, I don't know whether I, I've personally, in all of the eyes I've examined over the years, I've never seen somebody with acute glaucoma who had a perfectly normal physical examination. I didn't see, I've never seen it. Uh, and it, it may exist. But that's why they they made that instrument, and and then you can add a tone of pen onto it or whatever you want to. But it is a treatable disease, which the, the downside is visual loss, and that's serious. Rachel, any final thoughts?
2: Um, just an interesting thing about Imtala. So some people view that as kind of a weaker case than a malpractice case, but a lot of times, uh, it's a strategic move by plaintiffs to add an umbrella claim because it removes the case from state court and puts it in federal court. And generally, federal courts are thought to be um, less sympathetic to, say, the local hospital than a state court might be, and more likely to, you know, deliver a plaintiff's verdict. So, even if you know really the meat of it is a malpractice claim, and that's where you're hoping to make your money by attaching an umbrella claim, you might get it to a more sympathetic court
1: both cases uh, here are uh, settled we don't know the uh, the amounts uh one of the uh, counters was well if the diagnosis was delayed a day uh how do we know that that was a uh, uh, consequential in uh, decreasing the person's uh, uh visual problem well you know that's that most people who, who uh, would hear the case well you delayed the diagnosis by a day, and now the vision is uh, decreased. Would think that there is a causality there. So I think that 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 um, that comeback is not really going to work. Uh, in any case, two cases, at the same hospital, lightning striking twice. Uh, the, the I think the message here is get to learn to use that. Um, uh, slit lamp the other thing is i i remember going to asap meetings now they have a lot of other things to that will measure intraocular pressure that are a lot easier than the toner pen uh they have one version i remember that uh where you close your eyes and they t- they take the pressure right through your eyelid uh which is uh it was very cool so they're some people think that it takes uh, it's a little kind of hard to use a toner pen. On that. where's the batteries? We don't have the batteries. It's not been charged. It's you know, it's there's always some kind of excuses about that thing. Where is it? I can't find it. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. You can't. You can't really get away with the uh, uh, the equipment isn't here. This isn't there. The batteries are gone. You know what? You didn't give them a a decrease in your charges for that visit. Because you didn't have those things. And I, I, I think that, uh, and, and by the way, one of the best uh, teachers I ever had in med school said the first day of the opth, he says, here are the, the five core, uh, causes of the red eye. And he says, if you can't do anything else, and I don't care what you're going into, you know whether you're going into the internal medicine to the general surgery he said know these five and you won't hurt anybody i thought that was a great talk and you know i've i i've kept that to this day and if you if you think about it people with 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 red painful eyes you ought to have a diagnosis
1: you know i saw that both of these people had uh bilateral eye uh Eye symptoms, uh, which is not obviously the case normally in uh, glaucoma. It usually tends to be unilateral. There is this idea of inflammation around the limbus, which uh, when you have a red eye, most of the time people have red eyes, it's at more at the periphery than the center. Like if you have a conjunctivitis viral, you know, or allergic, or something like that, it's at the periphery. This is right around where the um, the Cornea meets the 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 uh, sclera, and so that's that's always kind of a tip-off. Uh, you better look inside the eye for some intraocular I- uh, issues. And also, they talk about classically mid-range and fixed p- pupil. I also left a um, link in there to an extraordinarily uh, comprehensive, brand new review of the everything you'd ever want to know about uh, uh, glaucoma.
0: <laughs> yep. By the oh. way, uh, with, with all of the uh, COVID going on and people not coming in and people giving health care over the phone or over the, you know, put, put them on the Zoom uh, thing. This is the kind of place where something like this could fall through the cracks. Sometimes being in front of them, you don't get as good a picture on Zoom. You don't get the same intensity. And I think it's much tougher to make these diagnoses um, over some communication device than it is in person.
1: Oh, you would you would think that that's the case,
0: yep. Rachel? Um, why don't you
1: do this uh, case that's coming up because I I think it's a really interesting case.
2: Sure, this one um, you know is a bit scary because I think a lot of us hearing the facts could see ourselves in this situation, but. Uh, in this case, a patient was woken up with 10 out of 10 pain in the upper stomach, chest tightness, felt like something was in his throat, woke up at 4 a.m. with this, came to the ED. He had what sounds like EKG and two troponin levels drawn, which were apparently normal, had a chest x-ray, it showed some cardiomegaly. Uh, I think while they were awaiting the, the results of the workup, he got signed off to an oncoming physician who followed up with him. Um, so the patient was feeling better. He reported his pain was no longer a ten; it was down to a four, and he was ultimately sent home with just a diagnosis, you know, chest pain, unclear etiology. And he died about eight hours later, and was ultimately found to have uh, thoracic aorta dissection. Yeah. So, <laughs> again, I think this is something you could see happen because it's so kind of routine. Somebody has. Chest pain. You do your EKG. You do your EKG. You do your troponins, and you know you think if those are normal, they go home. I think the thing that differentiates this maybe two things. Um, one, he he didn't have resolution of his symptoms. His pain was still a four, right. and and that was about uh, five, no seven hours after onset. So really, you know, not it, it was not resolved. Um, second. It sounds like they didn't look through the chart a lot, but he had multiple cardiac risk factors, you know, that would extend to his aorta, presumably. So he had a history of smoking, risk factor for dissection, obesity, hypertension, had a known murmur, you know, all of those things, even in somebody with negative troponin should have prompted additional workup. And third, you know, that 10 out of 10 pain is generally not what somebody with ACS comes complaining of. You know, and then goes on to have a negative workup. I think those three things, each one of them, probably should have prompted a slightly different clinical course for this guy.
0: Rachel, I want to uh, ask you. And now, I want I want an honest answer. Um, how many of these have you diagnosed yourself? in the department. Yeah, mm, uh, it, it, I would say two.
2: Two. And did you
0: make the diagnosis when you first met the person
2: or no. was it?
0: Yeah, yes, exactly. I I want everybody to understand that in your career, you're going to see a lot of chest pain. You're not going to see much of this. Here's the other thing. In in the last uh, two or three diagnosed in our department, they still died. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not like this is a given they're going to do okay. Because as they're dissecting, just getting things organized to get to the operating room to deal with that is, is a difficult deal. And I, and I know we need to think about it, but I promise you there are a lot of people who've, who've worked in emergency departments for years who've never seen one. And so it's the one that comes in that's going to get you. And, and those are still tough. And and they can be difficult.
1: Well, in this case, Greg, you would not have said, listen, uh, we think you have a dissection, but it's going to take a while. We have to call anesthesia, the surgery team. we got to get her blood and all that. So why don't you go home and wait, and we'll give you a call when we're ready.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you probably know? would. I agree. We, <laughs> would, we wouldn't do that. But the other thing is, uh, particularly having spent a lot of my career in some smaller hospitals, just getting the move to a, the correct place to get the surgery done is a huge step. And um, uh, you know, i I've sweated out a couple of those and they were <laughs> they were some of the worst nights of my life.
1: You know, I was familiar with a case that's very, very similar to this one. Um here's a case where the vital signs are normal. The uh, uh the troponins are, are consistently normal. They don't really say specifically, I don't know what um oh uh, they say EKGs were, I don't know what the EKGs were, but I assume the EKGs were normal. So you uh, you put to the side, okay, this person doesn't seem to be having a myocardial infarction uh, as best we can determine. However, there are two other things that are called, that are killers in the chest. One is a PE and the other is a dissection. So those are the big three. Those are the only three that matter that you have to make the diagnosis today. Everything else you can make the diagnosis tomorrow. It doesn't matter what it is, tomorrow is fine. But today you have to make the diagnosis of those three. So just and because it's un 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 uh, uncommon, we d- tend not to think of it, but it, this one it crept up on this person, and um, yes, exactly. We don't know at all whether we would have made any difference in the outcome of this case here, but it's kind of a a lesson for us to learn. And there was a malpractice, uh, you know uh, case initiated here. I think the uh, idea of sending people home with chest pain of unclear etiology, that gives me the creeps to tell you the truth because, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> you know, how, how, how about telling me what, it not, what, what it's not, or, you know, give give me a hint, but they got the big three is that, have you ex- excluded this section? Have you know, a D dimer might uh is like well, ninety five percent of people who have a secondary have it a positive D dimer. And you know, what's the chest x ray look like? Is there any abnormality of the chest x-ray, uh of the um the chest that's consistent with uh, the section, what are the pulses like? And, you know, I know that the pulses don't have to be unequal in this section, but it, at least it means you look for it and that you went through some effort for it and you're putting it in the chart so that a reasonable position will be, I, I looked for it, and I didn't see it, it wasn't there, yeah. uh, kind of thing. So, you know, it's it's another thing to take a position. Well, you had a case that had nothing uh, abnormal about it that was consistent with a, 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 a dissection, except... You had, as Rachel pointed out, persistent pain. You're sending somebody out the door with persistent pain, and you don't know the reason. That gives me the gives me the heebie-jeebies.
0: Yeah, but but the but the answer there is don't send them out the door. You can keep them a, a, around. You can retest them. That sort of thing. But if you think you're going to have the diagnosis every time on these cases. It's not been my experience over, you know, my 140,000 patient <laughs> career in emergency medicine. Yeah. No, well, that's why you I, get paid the big bucks, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I understand that. Yeah.
2: I was just going to say, I send people home all the time with persistent chest pain, but they're not people with a stack of cardiac risk factors. They're not people um, who had 10 out of 10 pain on presentation, and they're generally people that I feel pretty confident that, you know, I know what else is causing the pain. So, again, it, I don't know that any one of those factors should prompt you to, to keep this patient or do additional testing, but kind of the whole constellation associated with this patient scream that something else could be going on.
1: Well, I think in those cases, you may put down some, uh, the diagnosis that you think it may be. You know, if you're sending them home, I don't know that you'd be sending them home with the diagnosis of uh chest pain of un- unclear <laughs> etiology when they're uh, s- s- uh, and the, I, you know the case I saw actually uh, the the patients uh, it was the same thing they worked they ruled out an MI they 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 did, they did multiple troponins EKG that all that that stuff was um, not consistent with any acute ischemia. But the person had persisting pain. Uh, because of persisting pain, and this person had a negative chest x ray, negative D dimer, they just said, well, let's keep them and send them up as ruled out, Rule out, you know, uh, uh, myocardial infarction, which they had already ruled out. And the person, as they got to the floor and the nurse came in to do a, her assessment, basically the patient's eyes rolled back and you know, you've seen this Harville's uh, thing, you know, each of us have seen this when their head goes back, eyes roll back. And the next thing you know, they might've give a, a shake or two kind of thing. And they're out because there's just no blood going into their head. This guy dissected and died uh, in uh, the bed. They got all kinds of, they had a cardiac surgeon on top of him. They had all of the resources at this hospital to handle a dissection, but, um, it was it was just obviously too late. He was in the emergency department for at least five, uh, four or five hours uh, while they were doing their evaluation. So they 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 admitted the patient, but basically it was it was to no avail. This case that I'm talking about had negative D-dimer, and negative chest X-ray, which is really really creepy because um, this this poor doctor. Uh, um, these these kind of clues, which are usually there, were not there for him or her.
0: It happens and and uh, I'll I'll tell you again, it's a rare enough disease that uh, you you've had a great career. If you haven't, if one of these has not uh, uh, come through your department while you were there, because getting them taken care of is always a problem. By the way, we looked in the state of Michigan probably 20 years back. Who could actually handle such a case? You realize there's 144 emergency departments, I think, in the state of Michigan. There were probably seven hospitals maybe nine, if you stretched it, who actually could take somebody like this to the operating room. Uh, in the other cases, there was no way they could be handled at those hospitals. And I'm sure that's true in in Arizona. I mean, I'm sure there's a handful of hospitals that could handle a case like that.
1: Okay, let's do some stuff that's in the news. Um Here's a hot topic, the autonomous practice of PAs uh, in the uh, VA system. So Randy Danielson uh, sends me, he, he has on the service that basically, if anything has come in that relates to the PAs and P's, he, uh, he gets this and then he forwards it out to uh, some people. Randy is a uh, PA, PhD, professor and director, doctor of medicine, uh, doctor of medical sciences program at the Arizona School of Health Sciences. Uh, Greg, you know Randy well, I know Randy well, well. and uh, uh, Rachel, I'm sure you'll get to meet Randy. Randy does live in Scottsdale as well, or lives in Phoenix, actually. Uh, As of November 2020, uh, the VA basically has established a rule eliminating the necessity for a public uh, battle over who can supervise people, because the VA says we can uh, unilaterally determine that uh, nurse practitioners can work without... Um, supervision by a physician that began in the VA actually in 2016, and they don't really care about state laws allowing uh, this to occur because they're uh, they're not related uh, to the state. They're feds, right? So uh, this gets more into that story of uh, the PA, NP, you know, autonomous practice kind of thing, and that we're taking over their jobs, uh, they're taking over the doctor jobs, and anybody who teaches a PA or NP anything about emergency medicine is aiding and abetting the enemy here kind of thing. You know, uh, Rachel, we do a thing called uh, EM Boot Camp for uh, PAs, NPs, we have, uh, like 17,000 people go through it. Uh, who wanted to learn emergency medicine. And um, so I've gotten a few uh, emails saying I should cease and desist because uh, I'm, tr- I'm training our replacements here. Uh, any thoughts? I,
0: this is a little, a little bit of hot potato here, so I, I would... Uh,
2: I'm throwing it uh, to Greg. Well, listen, I took
0: this on when I was president of ASAP. And I gave a talk, which lost me more friends than you can ever imagine, when I said, be careful what we ask for, because all of these guys were out there saying, well, I can supervise three or four PAs. I said, watch what you do, what you say. Uh, It was just like they wanted to open, as far as I'm concerned, too many residencies in emergency medicine. Because as soon as you have too many people, and as soon as you have too many people who can be supervised by one um, physician, one, one emergency doc, all of a sudden, we start filling those positions with people who are not as experienced or trained. I, I said that, I, I know it got me in trouble, but I think I was right, and now... We're going back through asking a question about, do we really need more residencies in emergency medicine? Do we really need more PAs? Um, These questions haven't been answered. And uh, if you you think that it's like the old days, and uh, Rachel, you won't remember the old days, but when Rick and I started back 40 and 45 years ago, getting a job was not very difficult. Uh, these days in good places, nice locations, great hospitals, there are plenty of emergency docs. And, uh, last year, uh, the last numbers I saw was, uh, the board of emergency medicine does not limit the number of doctors who are produced. They test, they see if you're qualified but they don't limit it, and all of a sudden in the last 10 years, we've we've got more graduates than you can shake a stick at. You know, try go to nice cities and get a job in emergency medicine.
1: I don't know if you were aware that ASEP uh, ch- I contracted for a study on manpower issues in emergency medicine, and there was a webinar on May 9th where they released the uh, data from this uh, study that was done by this outside um, uh, in, uh, person uh, company, yeah. and uh, that is going to be written up. It may be written up already, but I'm not sure. But at the reb- webinar, they had all of these slides, and it was you know probably ran in an hour and a half. Let me give you the long and short of it. Uh, by 2030, there will be about 9,000 more emergency department uh, physicians than we need, uh, the, and the work. The best case scenario would be there would be six thousand um, emergency physicians, and the worst was over ten thousand. So the uh, the cat is out of the barn, or the horse is on the uh, out of the su- uh, out of the station, or something like that, because <laughs> the, the, the the trouble is upon us now. And there's and they had all kinds of ways that they thought that they could attenuate the the number of uh, physicians uh, in some ways. They were going to make the residencies harder. They were going to make them all four years. They were going to try to uh, raise the resident salaries so that the more uh, weak residencies wouldn't be able to keep up. They were going to increase the number of procedures that you had to do to finish so that places that uh, were marginal would have to get rid of some of the residents because to allow the other residents to get the required number of procedures. There's a whole bunch of things that they thought about that would uh, try to um, change the traje- trajectory um, here. Any thoughts, I st- Rachel? I
0: stand by the talk I gave 20 years ago, which, again, a lot of the academics hated me oh, for, is- but it's it it was absolutely the truth. If you don't watch the number of people you produce, you can overproduce, and that that doesn't. Bode well, well, listen, Gregory, you,
1: you were you were correct. The, the, they didn't watch. And nope.
2: um, now, now we got this
1: watch. challenge.
2: So I don't know if I'm ready to lose friends yet. And I I reserve the right to revise my view on this. But right now, I don't support independent practice for NPs or PAs. And it's not because there are you know, too many physicians. That might be our own problem. But for me, it's a, a quality issue. Um you know, you can look at hours of training and and NPs and PAs are coming out with hours somewhere, you know, that we would be at middle of med school. And I think we all know us as, or not, not med school, even, well, yeah, med school, some maybe early residency for some PA programs, you know, at that stage, we were not competent physicians. We could get by treating a lot of patients, but, you know, we, we weren't, um, I think up to par, up to the standards that we would hold ourselves to, and I think that's the fear with letting people with you know significantly fewer hours of training play the role of physician independently, and and that's the concern I have is really a quality issue. Um, you know, I've seen uh, NPs and PAs work in supervised um, functions in ways that I think probably are safe and increase efficiency. So I'm not against use of NPs and PAs, but I just don't see why. You know, we're granting independent practice authority, I would argue, without sufficient evidence that our patients will be safe in in those settings.
1: Uh, About 23 states allow uh, independent practice, autonomous practice of uh, nurse practitioners. Half those states allow it as soon as they graduate. The other half require, you know, five years of experience and those kinds of things. So, they're – they add – some level of, uh, on the job training, but, uh, the idea of getting independent practice after, um, 28 months or is it, is it 28 months? Yeah. I think yeah. the NP, uh, the PA are 28 months. Yes. is kind of a little, uh, scary, although we're not, it's like, it's kind of like the PAs really are feeling left in the dirt here because, uh, in the dust, because they're, NP colleagues are going for this autonomous practice and the PAs feel that uh, they're um, not up, uh, not um, capable of competing with these uh, nurse practitioners because they don't have such a kind of thing. And so there's also a push in the PA world for uh, decreasing um, levels of supervision. And during the COVID pandemic, these uh, supervisory rules were grossly, um, modified to allow people to do just about whatever they thought they were was a, appropriate to try to deal with the problems that people were having.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think we've seen the total effect of COVID yet. I mean, we've decided that we can now uh, go to the doctor by look, you know, by sitting in front of the uh, TV camera. I'm not sure that's true. I think we all learned things when we actually saw the patient. Um, I, I'm concerned that 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 we've let this thing kind of fall apart. But then again, I'm an old man; nobody cares what I think anymore. So, but 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 be concerned about this.
1: Well, given that that's true, let's move on to the uh, next item uh, um, from the news, Greg, which uh, which is yours. It's just a one liner here.
0: Uh, this is the uh this is the one in Wisconsin.
1: Yes, Watertown Regional Medical Center.
0: Yeah, it, it's true uh, the uh, uh the anesthesiologist. Th- this is this is exactly uh what happened in emergency medicine and this is the anesthesiologist. Uh they got into the same deal where they said, "Well, I can supervise this many a nurse anesthetist and somebody says I can supervise 8 I can supervise 10 well eventually everybody said why do we need you at all and when you think about it uh, they they were the they were the problem that ruined themselves cuz when they can t- supervise and they say the care is the same then why do you need an anesthesiologist and that's exactly the point that's being made here. How much training is enough training? What do you need? And, and how many people do you need to supervise? And so I think that uh, I think the anesthesiologists have the exact same problem that we do, which is you can make yourself redundant. You can make yourself no longer useful.
1: Well, there always the idea was that the anesthesiologist were, was there in case somebody got into trouble, kind of thing. And uh, this hospital apparently got rid of its anesthesiologist and just did a nurse anesthetists. Now I don't know how many were people were talking about. There is one surgeon there who is quoted as saying, "You know, the anesthetists are just fine." So I don't know. Uh, some of the details because normally you would think the doctors would stand up for the anesthesiologist but that's not the case here uh but it's kind of this is the kind of stuff that's in the news uh suggesting to physicians that you better be careful here yeah
2: i i found one mention on this article uh of this hospital that they did retain a single anesthesiologist but that brings up another point i wanted to make about this that i think we're making a mistake by focusing only on independent practice states because what the rest of the states are experiencing is, you know, supervision and name only. And in relevance to emergency departments, I know a lot of my colleagues, my residency friends, are out in community hospitals where they're, um, you know, quote unquote, supervising mid levels, but all they're doing is signing their charts at the end and essentially making themselves liable for the mid levels' mistakes. Um, you know, I think it's fraudulent. And and they think it's fraudulent. They would prefer not to do it, but that's kind of how the job market is these days. You know, you pretend to supervise, or you don't have a job, and so that's happening in the non-independent practice states. And I think is um, sometimes ignored when we talk about this, you know, level of encroachment.
0: Yep, I- I- exactly. And I- I'll tell you, at, at a certain point in time, the public is going to have to become involved, and that that is what do they want. I mean if you actually want a certain level of training and experience and that that level of safety terrific if you're happy with something less well that's a different situation but you know nobody asks those questions until something goes wrong and now all of a sudden there's going to be other other issues brought up I you know, having done uh, medical malpractice cases uh, on both docs and and pas, how they actually get supervised does make a difference. and if if all you're gonna do is sign the chart, it can be a problem medically legally.
1: Well, if you just sign the chart, it's kind of like at best, at best, that it's going to be um, retroactive. Um, of
0: course. I I mean, it's
1: not real time at all. And so they could have made a mistake. And when you're looking at the chart, most people know how to make a chart that's consistent with the diagnosis. And so, you know, it's very difficult to necessarily know that that, what was really going on. So I think I I advise people don't sign charts because it's like, well, what does it mean when you put your name on a chart? Uh, Does it uh, is that quality assurance that you're looking at her? so uh, I don't think you ought to do it.
0: Yeah, and I think this discussion probably goes on less, uh, you know, <clears throat> in, in Harvard hospitals than it does in uh, East Jesus, Nebraska. I mean, I, I think there there is a difference in the kind of care and supervision that is actually given. And, you know, I, I worked for years with, with PAs, and I saw every patient but you know what I don't that's not happening anymore and uh, is is they can you know staff with a less expensive model they're gonna do it
2: that's not happening and people are you know they have to sign at the threat of losing their job you talk about the job market right now I mean the physicians don't have the negotiating power if they say I'm not comfortable signing the chart why would that employer just not move on to the next person.
0: No, of course. Yes. Yeah. And hospitals, uh, particularly big hospitals that have lots of docs. uh, You know what? If you, if you don't want to be part of that uh, system and, and uh, sign those charts. Well, we have enough doctors now, enough graduates, enough people who finished the residencies and enough people in New Jersey who want to move to Arizona (laughs) that that uh, don't worry, they'll get somebody to take the job.
1: We we really can't afford any more people coming into Arizona, given the fact that uh, there's no water there. <laughs> you know, and, you know, yes. it yes. no, won't be in the next six months. It'll it's all, it's all gonna dry you, up.
0: Kind you of realize, of to Michigan people, we kind of look at that and <laughs> we've got water everywhere. And uh, you know, you
1: know, I, no I, you know we've talked about this. There's a great opportunity for a pipeline. Your lake is overflowing, and we're dry. You know,
0: you not know. Yeah. No. They were, were talking about it. a
1: pipeline from the you know, a la. Alaska crude, they got they did that. They went about the coals, coal tar sands in, in Canada. They were willing to bring that stuff down here, but no, we can't get a water pipe, you know.
2: <laughs> you can't get a water pipe. Right? Um,
1: Rachel, you we know, want to tell us about this sexual harassment suit, big time dollars here.
2: Yeah, so this is a bit of a juicy one. Um, it's a 45 million dollar suit that was brought against an anesthesiology, anesthesiology resident then OHSU. Sounds like for Actions that happened in the emergency department. Now, the story we're getting is just uh, the allegations right now um, brought by the plaintiff. But but basically, the story sounds like the plaintiff was, I think, an employee of the emergency department, and while working there, she was repeatedly harassed by an anesthesiology resident. Um, and she details, or this report details, um, you know, what those harassment actions were and they were pretty obvious you know pictures of an erection actually pushing his his body against hers um pretty i I could go on but fairly egregious things um and so she apparently reported this or allegedly reported this um to several people within the department including several that were um the Title IX, like established Title IX mandatory reporters, and it it sounds like per her allegations, they didn't fulfill those Title IX obligations and actually, you know, take action to stop the harassment from continuing, launch a for you know an appropriate investigation, and from her point of view, kind of um, they they didn't do anything to discourage the behavior and still continued to like socialize with this resident, and so she brought this. Um, Forty-five million suit, four and a half, um, or forty of that was for punitive damages from the resident, and the suit's still pending, as far as I know. Yeah, and now uh,
0: let me be very clear about this: the person who is obligated, or the entity obligated to act here, is the hospital. Correct? The hospital is obligated to take their resident. They're this. They're that. And discipline them uh and for after all the resident doesn't carry 45 million dollars in insurance for this sort of thing uh who, mal- who's at fault there it's not malpractice you know they have no
1: even if they even if they were independent physician that would be a, a uh, not covered by their insurance i wouldn't think
2: yeah right well the while the hospital has a duty for sure, I think what's interesting in this case or made it more juicy to the emergency medicine community, is that the people who the harassment was reported to also have a duty to kind of go through and start that harassment um, evaluation. And I, I took out some language from Title IX. It basically requires even before the outcome of an of an investigation is determined that, Other actions are taken to separate the parties that are involved, provide support services to the person who's complaining, provide increased monitoring, supervision, such as by changing schedules, et cetera. And those are the things that allegedly weren't done in this case. So I think, you know, a take home for me is, you know, know if you're a mandatory reporter because you can get yourself in major trouble for not fulfilling your obligations there. And second, you know... um, just investigating a harassment complaint is not the only obligation you have. there There are interim measures that are expected, and you could be held responsible for if if they're not carried out. and And you knew about this,
0: yeah, yeah, no, this this is very bizarre because you would expect the first thing that would happen, or at least at the hospitals I've been involved in, parties are separated. I mean, they're not they're not uh, assigned to be on at the same time, this, that, another thing. All kinds of statements are taken. Um, I, I can't. I can't picture that some of these things weren't done in this day and age when everybody is sensitive to the issue.
1: This involved the uh, people in the emergency department who are were, were supposed to take these actions, and some of these people were well known in emergency medicine. Some people lost their jobs over this. Uh, thing uh, it it, uh, it it kind of blew up at the um, Oregon Health and Science University Hospital's emergency department. So if yeah. things are pending. Uh, Forty point point five million seems a a lot, but that was for severe, substantial, enduring emotional distress, discomfort, and interference with daily life. Uh, the alleged perpetrator resigned his position in the residency and the employer. At his new residency, were advised of the charges against him, and the head of the emergency department uh, left the department. Uh, yeah. Let me let me do a Missouri case: twenty-six million dollars in wrongful termination lawsuit. Doctor Bravant uh, accused M Care of terminating him because he raised uh, concerns about staffing at the Oakland Park Regional Medical Center, and uh, this is a case where. Uh, of the original 29 million awarded, 20 million was uh, for uh, punitive damages. But the, the the judge judge reviewed this and reduced the award to 13 million after applying punitive damage caps. That's still a huge huge award. Both sides appealed, of course, and the results were that 23 million dollars, plus three million dollars in interest, is now in the hands of Dr. Ravand, who will not need to talk about staffing issues. For the rest of his life.
0: Yes, exactly,
1: and I, 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 you know, I think we often kind of look at suits uh, where the awards seem outrageous and um, and feel like it's easy to take pot shots at those kinds of suits. Well, here's an award to a colleague, which seems to be pretty outrageous, and yeah. so uh, I'm I'm. And feeling comfortable taking pot shots thank you very much i'm
0: uh, i'm aware of this particular the overland park regional medical center uh i have done uh some medical legal work for them before uh, involved in uh, malpractice actions um this is you know this this isn't harvard this isn't yale this isn't these kinds of places but i think what people have to realize is you don't have to be the big names uh, to have committed committed an error here, and this this is a this is a real wake up call um, in this in this situation. Um, this 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 is a big award, Rachel. What's your thoughts?
2: Well, so just to put on some meat on it, I was curious what the details were. So it sounds like the actual complaint is that even. At times when the ED was solo staffed, the emergency physician was still expected to respond to codes throughout the hospital. So the you know the physician basically brought that up to uh, the mcare vice president, executive vice president, per this whatever I was reading, and that person initially said, you know, these decisions are made based on money. Just ignore it. nothing you can do about it. And then the physician subsequently had all the other physicians sign on to a letter basically complaining about the same thing. You know, this is really unsafe, submitted the letter. And then the next thing you know, he was fired and also was prohibited from working at any M care site in his state and the adjacent state. So I just think those details are interesting because actually that practice scenario he describes, I, I don't think is unique.
0: Not you know,
2: at all.
0: I, <laughs> so, I did, I did that for years.
2: Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting that that, that's what this arose from. And, you know, the fact that it was that big makes me wonder if people are recognizing places like MCARE are are huge. And unless there's a, a large verdict, they're not going to feel it. You know, if they had to pay this guy a couple hundred thousand, they're not really going to feel that.
1: Yeah, well, you know this is the way many 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 community hospitals operate there's only one doctor in the building at, after uh, certain hours and i I often ask well listen why can't we get the radio uh the anesthesiologist to respond can't they go to the codes can't they debate kind of thing
0: the pathologist and, yeah well, yeah that you way you cut out the middleman
1: <laughs> so so uh, this is, you know, in many places, this is standard operating procedures uh, right. because they cannot afford to have another position and, you know, hanging around waiting for codes and they're not needed. So it's kind of like, um, and yet in your contract, it says you're going to do that. And yet, you know, you can't be in two places at once. You may have a pe- right. person who was equally sick in the emergency department. So you have to make some decisions about that. But this is. You know, if you were to do a survey of uh, of a bunch of community hospitals with single-staffed emergency physicians, I mean, that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and when you think about it, um, big hospitals, the bigger the hospital, the less this is a problem. If you've got the University of Michigan Hospital, they've got so many doctors in-house all the time to run codes uh, that nobody in the emergency department is concerned If you go 20 miles away or 30 miles away to a small town, after midnight, there's one doctor in the hospital,
2: the emergency doc. I think the issue in this case is not that there was solo staffing or that the emergency physician was asked to do unreasonable things. The issue and where all the money came from was that they were fired for raising concern about that. And then not just fired, but also prohibited from working in a bunch of neighboring sites. And so... um, you know the, the the physician really wouldn't have had a case if they just said, "Well, I don't want to work here if you're not going to give me more support." But the the fact that they were fired for for voicing that was really the issue.
1: Yep. All right, um, Greg, you have a story about the, the hunting in West Virginia wanting one billion dollars <laughs> for their um, their opioid addiction patients. Uh,
0: People don't realize that the opiate problem in America was very much a rural problem and that per person, uh, West Virginia was one of the worst states in the, you know, we always think of, well, California, what's going on here, or there. No, it was places like West Virginia. And, uh, this, and this had to do with the amount of drug per person, that was coming, getting out into the system. It was it was unbelievable uh, per person. How many how many of this how much of this stuff was getting out there? And uh, this was this was a uh, despite the fact um, the state's attorney general had had uh, worked in this thing, and, and they came down to what seventy three million dollars. As 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 the figure or the or the amount that was going to be paid by uh, Johnson and Johnson and restitution, Rick. Um, yeah, they said
1: uh, uh, that's not enough money, and yeah, they sued, This is a suit against um, McKesson, McKesson, which we've talked about before. This is a major drug distributor. Uh, Bergen and Cardinal Health are are basically distributors of drugs. And the alleged allegation here is that uh, the town that they were, they were sending drugs to had a population of uh, 3,000 people and they were selling sending millions of opioid pills to them. And right. that they uh, ignored their um, stop gaps, which suggested that when a certain number of opiates were uh, ordered by a pharmacy that – that was viewed as uh, a little concerning, and they would not—they would in, in, intervene in some way. Well, they didn't do that, apparently. This is uh, related to the Tug Valley Pharmacy thing yeah, that we this talked is, about. Yeah, this
0: is Tug Valley. Way, we,
1: years ago, remember. Tug Valley Pharmacy, where they were getting bajillions of opiate pills in this t- tiny little town, and everybody knew it. So basically, the city says, we want to have our own suit. We want a billion dollars to take care of us. Uh, these other settlements are not going to make uh, a dent in our problem. They uh, acknowledge uh, there's a, a trial that's moving forward, despite the fact that Johnson & Johnson and the three drug distributors offered $26 billion. But that was to settle all the opiate uh, suits in the United States. In the and, United
0: States, and
1: right. And so they, they said, no, 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 we, we, we need more than that. So uh, they're going after a billion dollars, and this trial is moving moving forward. There is a show on HBO. I think it's a four-hour, you know, two hours, twice kind of thing. It's entitled Crime of the Century. And I just heard about it this morning. I've uh, done a little reading on it. It is a powerful I heard about it on the radio. Some guy was talking about this show and he just could not say enough things about how powerful and how good this show was. So I haven't seen it personally. It's on HBO, Crime of the Century. Uh, You might want to take a look.
0: Yeah, you'll remember, Rick, that uh, uh, on this program, uh, what was probably five years ago, we did the initial Tug Valley Pharmacy case. Uh, and talked about uh, how this is starting. What it shows is this isn't over, uh, and the the number. I think this has had a huge effect on prescribing in the United States. The number of oxycotton tablets, things like that, has dropped like a stone. And I think physicians are tremendously concerned about being called in on the carpet for this sort of thing, and the and the individual pharmacies um, have have totally undergone a revision as to how they're checked for the number of pills they give out.
1: Well, the Tug Valley Pharmacy was, uh, I think, a little mom and pop pharmacy that made a lot of money on uh, giving out <laughs> yeah. opiates. Yeah, yeah. According people, according to Tug Va-
0: Valley, everybody in the town had to had to be taking you know forty two tablets a day or something to use that much medication. So, right. Oh, go,
2: ahead. I, go ahead. I think it's I think it's interesting that so much of the attention so far has been on the manufacturers and distributors because um, sitting, you know, it's obvious that physicians are on the hook for this as well, and we just don't hear as much about it, but. I, I pulled up a, a study right now that just showed, um, just looking at news stories of physicians getting sued, they found about 400, um, about averaging, went from zero in 1995 to about 20 a year right now. Um, and physicians are getting sued on charges, and successfully, for drug trafficking for this, fraud, money laundering, manslaughter, all those charges for basically over-prescribing opioids. Um yeah. 85% of the physicians who have been charged in these news reports, which again are kind of highlighting the most juicy stories, but 85% of those were sentenced to prison and their average term was 10 years. So yeah, you know, no. this is an area outside of malpractice that physicians can get themselves in deep, deep water in.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's right. They shouldn't have been doing that. They should have been asking questions. Uh, for years, all of us knew that uh, if you're if you're writing for more than ten tablets or fifteen tablets without somebody having to come back in, being re-examined, going to the to their own doc, something like that, there's something wrong here. And I, I think that uh, I think this is fu- that finally came home to roost, and and it, it it wasn't correct.
2: But beyond that, you know, there are data that suggests that the majority of people who get addicted to opioids got them from a valid ED prescription, not just a prescription, but out of the ED. And so I think that, you know, we're at risk even if we give opioids for something questionable, like, oh, belly pain without a cause. Here's your three yeah. days of opioids. You know, a good lawyer could connect that back and say there was no indication for this. You know, you caused this person's addiction, death, whatever. And I haven't seen a case with that fact pattern, but it, I'm I'm not— convinced that we're protected from it.
0: Yeah, I, but but it always makes it look better if you've got a recheck of a patient in three days kind of thing. Most people would kind of look at that as okay, but now if you've refilled it 10 times, now you got a different problem on your hands. And and I think that if you look at some of the numbers uh, that these, that the pharmacists were filling, particularly in the Tug Valley case, you know, two hundred, three hundred at a, at a crack. I mean, this is unbelievable, well, but an uh, know,
1: Example where everybody just kind of turned their back because, you know, everybody was making money on it. There were the doctors who were working these work comp clinics kind of thing were making money on it. The pharmacy was making money on it. The patients were uh, content. The patients were selling the drugs. And there was a whole industry uh, in West Virginia regarding uh, that centered around uh, opiates. And, yes, there were tons and tons of people addicted in the process. It's really interesting when you read some of the literature about how, Easily, it is to get addicted, uh, based on your, on how you, how your body uh, handles these drugs and how your mind handles these drugs. Some people uh, are very prone to be addicted; others are not. But it, it can take as few as three days to get people so that they're, they're craving more of these. Uh, and yeah, we might have started out people, but it's really their family doctors who prescribe them over and over and over and over thereafter. I mean, you know, I've never prescribed an oxycontin in my life, kind of thing. But you know, that's not that was kind of prescribed by family doctors and or were comp doctors, but I, I would be very surprised if it was done in, in out of the ER. But but there's you're right, this is not over by any stretch of the imagination.
0: <laughs> yep. And, and by the way, simply because you're not doing it doesn't mean somebody in your department isn't. And so now what we're seeing is all of the, they're getting reports every month back to the department meetings as to who's written for what, uh, you know, and and nobody's ever checking the antibiotics. <laughs> it's it's the pain medicine and uh, sleepers and pain medicine and pretty much that's it that's that's what we're concerned about
1: although i was concerned frankly now that uh we are becoming kind of like the pendulum may be swinging too far right and that uh patients are are needlessly <clears throat> suffering because uh, we uh are not giving out these drugs which uh, i think you know may be helping people that uh where other things really won't you just it's hard to say here take a couple of Advil kind of thing you know and when you look at what uh, the prescribing options are you know these drugs are really not not worth talking about I mean you can't prescribe Toradol I mean you you just read the package insert on Toradol you can't you can't be private (laughs) doing that um you uh the there's just really nothing that you can prescribe
0: yeah. So it's no, like the and next, they're
1: not, and they're going to say, "Hey, I, I've been waiting here four hours, and you give me a handful of Tylenol for crying out loud?"
0: Yeah. The uh, the next uh, big fortune will be made by somebody who actually comes up with a decent pain medication, which is non-addictive. I mean, if you if you want to set your kids uh, on, on a project, have them do that, because uh, the person who conquers that will will have made something useful
1: guys i think it's time to wrap up we didn't get through our agenda for this um month we'll pick it up next month uh i have a i do have i did have a um i, I was going to do a, a a listener sent in a email that uh, that wanted to talk about doctors who are working huge numbers of hours and shifts and the medical legal liability associated with that. We're going to save that for next time because I think that's a pretty juicy topic.
0: Okay, uh, Greg, do you have a wine by the I do, I- as a matter I- of fact. Okay. And um, as you know, we are, uh, I'm closing down my wine cellar and we're moving. Um, Go uh, I- I- I've got one for, for you to mark. If you're a Californian, uh, be proud, Beringer, which has been a great producer for years and years. Uh, some of the early, the late 1990, early 2000 wines have been reviewed and looked at again, and are considered spectacular. One of them to look at, and I have two bottles of this, is the 1998. Uh, Knights Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Beringer, And uh, if you can get the bottles, enjoy it. I have no idea what they cost now. When I got these, they were like 18 or 20 bucks a bottle. They still had the markers on them, but uh, fantastic wine. And you don't have to go out of the country to get great wine. There you go. Thanks, Greg. And
1: uh Rachel, thanks for joining us this uh, month and we look forward to seeing you next month with this.
2: Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me guys.
1: Yeah. All right, that's Rick. We got a signing off May uh Risk Management Monthly twenty twenty one. Uh thanks for listening and bye for now.